Hey, everybody. We're here with Armand today. Hey, Ar Armand, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Adam? Excellent. Why don't you tell people who you are and where you're working today? Yeah, absolutely. My name's Armand Froke. I run the sales development organization at a company called Carta. Carta essentially allows private companies to trade and manage their equity the same way a public company would. And so I run the sales development organization, which consists of about 25 SDRs total in two different offices in San Francisco and in Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. That's great. So we're going to talk a lot about SDR today and managing that kind of team. Yeah, absolutely. So let's roll the intro and come right back. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, everybody. Before we get started in this episode, I know that you're eager to get going, but I wanted to ask for your help. We want to get the word out there more that uh, this podcast exists. So if you're finding value in this and you really are enjoying this, would you mind please sharing this with your colleagues or putting it on social media as much as you can so that we get the word out there and we could continue to deliver more and more content like this? Really appreciate your help and uh, thank you very much. Great. So Armand, what does your sales process look like today as far as like how the SDRs get the leads and then hand them over to the AEs? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy to walk through full sales cycle. But in the SDR world, it looks a, a little bit different. I typically break down the SDR sales process into three different pieces. The first piece is you actually need to go and find accounts or companies to go afterwards. So you're looking on Zoom Info, you're looking on Crunchbase. We largely sell to venture-backed startups. And so we're starting by with a very broad funnel and saying, hey, out of the 30 or 40,000 venture-backed companies that are out there, how do I drill down to 50 of those companies that I want to target? And so it starts by saying, hey, I'm going to go after companies who are Series A in the fintech space with this many employees with this much funding and drilling down super specific and using crunch face filters to get there. The next step is actually finding people to target at those companies. And so then we're using Zoom Info, we're using SalesNav to go down and start high with the CEO, with the CFO, and then work our way down to the controller, to the finance team, to other folks on the HR team. And then the last piece is actually going and engaging with those prospects. And that typically uses some sort of sales enablement tool like Outreach or Sales Loft where we're doing a combination of cold emails and cold calls to get in the door. Typically, any given prospect will go through at least 10 touches over 30 days, a combination of phones and emails. And then once we are able to engage with one of those prospects, set a meeting with clear next steps, then we qualify it and pass it on to an account executive to close it. Wow, that's nice. So how many touch points in how many days did you say? Typically, I like to say 10 to 14 touch points across 30 days. And if you were to do those all over email, that'd be really spammy. We mix it between LinkedIn, email, and phone. Okay. And this is for outbound? That's correct. Okay. So how many emails, how many phone calls, how many LinkedIn's roughly? 
Right. And so I, I'm a big advocate of the phones and a lot of people say cold calling is dead and I'm happy to go into why it's not. And I can give you some ratios there, but typically it's a two to one ratio, two digital touches, meaning email or LinkedIn to one phone call. And so if you have say 12 touches total, you might have four phone calls mixed in across those three days. And then eight of those touches will be a combination of email and LinkedIn. Okay. Why that kind of ratio? I mean, it's interesting. Nobody's actually ever said, hey, do this kind of ratio. So how did you come up with that? Yeah. So it's people tend to think that salespeople don't A-B test anything, but we actually <laughs> really advocate for reps who learn here. And so every time we put together a new sequence, we would A-B test it and we would look at open ratios. We would look at reply ratios. And so the first piece of that is how many calls is necessary? And so we tested three calls, we tested no calls, we tested 20 calls, right? And what we ultimately found is that after that fourth call, if you haven't gotten somebody on the phone at a certain point over three or four weeks, you're probably not going to get them on the phone anyways. Yeah. And so we found that four is sort of our magic number. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's three, uh, but we find that four is generally effective. And then what we found is that instead of stacking all of your touches across one or two weeks, which we see all the time, some people do 10 touches in 14 days. It's spamming people. It's bombarding them. It's making them more angry than happy. And you'll see that reply ratios actually substantially dip. But the sequences that ultimately yielded the highest rate of return on our time based on the reply ratio was using a sequence over 30 days where if someone was going off a PTO and they came back, we could still get to them. We could tell a narrative over another eight touches over email and phone and use those in conjunction. And so to, the answer to your question is we A-B tested a lot of it. And we found that a nice mix was around a month-long sequence with multiple different forms of touches. Oh, okay. That's really cool. And your LinkedIn touches, what did those look like? Are those like connection requests or what? Yeah. And so we, we experimented with this a little bit more too. And at the beginning, a lot of these sales automation tools are really great to be able to automatically pull up someone's profile and find them in two seconds. What you'll find oftentimes is that the connection, the first piece is really impactful because it puts you in a different channel. So as opposed to just email or just phones, uh, they can put a face to the name, right? And so oftentimes you'll see people after the first connection request, they'll respond over email because they've seen me as a familiar face. The next step of that is, do I actually send them an in-mail or do I just send them a regular message? And so we used to send a lot of in-mails here, but we almost never got anybody to respond to them because it's just a sales channel. And so yeah. we actually stopped doing in-mails. What we would do is we would do a second LinkedIn message touch. And so let's say I connected with somebody, I would let two other touches ride. So let's say it's, I've done a phone, I've done an email, and I might do a LinkedIn request, right? Four, five, six touches passed. Then I'll have another task set up to actually go do a LinkedIn message. And it'll only bleed that through if they've actually accepted me as a connection. So if somebody accepts me as a connection, then I'll always do a LinkedIn message because that means I now have an open, warm channel with them that is not just email or phone. But if they haven't accepted that connection, I typically won't go and do an in-mail. Yeah. Especially when you send a connection request with a note, most people actually miss that, I find, the initial message because they just go and click yes to everybody that happens and then they don't actually read the message. So I always like to yeah. send that follow-up one anyways, even if it's just thanks for connecting, just so that they read the initial message. Exactly. And if you look at LinkedIn's interface, when you send a connection request and you have like this massive message, it looks really weird. It's like you've received a request and then you have this massive message that's being scrunched into a friend request or a connection request and nobody ever reads it. If anything, it actually looks a little bit less professional. So that first connection request is literally like 
one or two sentences. It's, hey, it's Armand at Carta. We work with other ventures in your space. I'd love to connect. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't go on and on. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to your team. What are some of the biggest challenges that your team is facing today? I think the biggest challenge is there's so much noise out there. And it's so easy to automate the way that you do the business today that it's a double-edged sword. The problem, or the beauty of it rather, is that you can really automate out a lot of the thinking when it comes to, hey, should I touch this person on the first day, on the fourth day, on the seventh day, et cetera. And you can automate all of that. And if used correctly, you can still tailor your emails to the same degree. In fact, even better using some of these sales automation tools by saying, hey, I'm going to put together a sequence for the fintech space that's tailored at fintech CFOs only. The problem and the double-edged sword piece of that is that that actually rarely happens. What ends up happening is every single sales organization has 10, 20 SDRs sending out the same generic junk right? And that's sometimes the stuff that gets into my team. And we really try to suss that out. And so it's breaking through the noise and still taking a tailored approach using the sales automation tools without just carpet bombing and spamming prospects. Because the bottom line is everybody can do that now. And marketing can actually do that better than us. But breaking through that noise is true sales skill. Being able to tailor a message and then pick up the phone, that's where sales skills lie. And that's what I try to coach my SDRs to. But I'm not going to lie. There are still SDRs who want to send out 800 emails a week with the same message. And it's a mindset shift for them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds easy to just spam and, you know, fire in every direction and and see what lands, but you get much better results when you actually personalize it and do the research on the actual individual that you're trying to prospect. Exactly. And it's one thing to say, let's say I was selling uh, Oracle or something like that, or Salesforce. Their TAM, their market space is extremely large, right? There are a lot of folks who can use an ERP system. If you're QuickBooks, there are tons of people who can use QuickBooks. For us, we have 30,000 venture-backed companies. If I had every SDR send out 1,000 emails a week, I would burn through my market in three weeks. Yeah. And so it's, it's totally unfeasible. And so we really, especially when you have a small marketer, if you're going after enterprise clients, I almost have the temptation to take away some of these automation tools or limit their effectiveness because of the fact that people abuse them sometimes. Absolutely. What tools are you using? So we use a combination of, there are really three things. If you were building out any key sales stack, you would want three things. The first thing you would want is you'd want a good data source. That would be something like Zoom Info, where you can find people. You need something to find in companies. In that case, that's Crunchbase or PitchBook for us. And you really need good quality data sources because otherwise it's garbage in, garbage out. If you can't find people to call, the calls are ultimately going to be garbage. The second piece is we use Salesforce. I mean, it's standard CRM. <laughs> not not crazy yeah. about it, but you sort of have to have one, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship, I think, with most salespeople is it sucks because you need yeah. a developer to do anything with it. even just to make it work, but no other CRM really comes close to doing what it needs to do. The tricky part is Salesforce is sticky, right? And so it has integrations up the wazoo. And so once it gets into your business and once it gets into your sales ops team's language that they speak, it's very hard to rip that out. And so that's what's so scary about Salesforce is they basically latched onto a customer base with their initial CRM and then 
all of the integrations and every additional product that they send, they can just send it down those customer funnels and it makes their product that much more and more sticky. It's certainly not the best looking product on the market. It is far, far, far not that at all, but it's certainly the stickiest and the most integrated into our ecosystem. But anyways, the last piece is uh, once you actually have the leads in your system, you have a system to track those leads. The last piece is you need a system to actually engage those leads. And that's what I've been talking about a lot here. There's outreach, there's sales loft, there are a bunch of sales automation tools, but we use outreach, which basically lets us automate, hey, the first touch is going to look like this. The second email is going to look like this. On the fifth day, you're going to remind me to make a phone call and you'll let me make that phone call out of outreach and you'll log all of that activity automatically in Salesforce. That stuff is super helpful, but again, it can be abused. Yeah. I think the most important part is it logs everything. Yeah. <laughs> Because as as a salesperson to sit there and actually log your emails or log the phone calls, it's such a hassle to manually do that, that these tools make it a dream. Yeah. I mean, the Salesforce UI, trying, I have a buddy who works at a large legal software firm and he doesn't have outreach. And the time it takes me to make 40 calls is literally half the time. And we're doing just as many calls. In fact, I can research them a little bit better because outreach has really clean dashes that automatically pop up how much funding they have, a snapshot of the company. And he's like manually entering every single phone call into Salesforce. And it's like he's working in mud, right? Yeah. And so it's so important to have some low-level sales automation tool just for that efficiency standpoint because Salesforce's UI is pretty troublesome. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's take a spin in a different direction. As a sales leader, as a manager, what has been your biggest challenge? I think that the biggest challenge is you can bring a horse to water, right? But you can't force them to drink. The beauty of sales is a glorious math equation, right? It's inputs in and it's outputs out. And the SDR function is the epitome of that. And so I know if somebody makes this many cold calls and this many emails, right? I know if somebody's having a good week, if they've made 200 cold calls in the week and they've sent 400 emails or something like that, right? Your two to one ratio. But it's amazing that not everyone will actually do that, right? And when your only job is prospecting and when we teach you at a time block, sometimes the pieces just don't come together. And that's what can get frustrating is we can give everybody all of the abilities to succeed, but failure is ultimately a choice. I hate it when people say failure is not an option. Failure is actually always the most readily available option at any given point in time, but it's a choice. And in sales, you can choose to do the activity or you can choose to not. And I cannot coach anybody unless you actually go and do the activity. And I'm not saying it's a volume approach, but there's a minimum level of, hey, you need to take this many swings so I can actually coach you there. And the bottom line is we live in a world in which you don't have to grind super hard anymore. People are raised with a nine to five mindset. And the people who grind today are ultimately the ones who are doing the best. And it's a very clear tie to the results. But again, it's for a lot of people. They want all the benefits of being a top producer without actually having all of the work of being a top producer. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you listen to Zig Ziglar? I do not, but I, I've heard some of his stuff before. Yeah. So you were talking about a choice and it's failure is not an option, but failure is a choice. He has a bit where he talks about when he was overweight and he says, I was overweight by choice. Because I chose what to put in my mouth. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's some people that that doesn't apply to, but like everything in life is a choice and yeah. you always have a choice and it's really important to keep that in mind. You said about time blocking. 
Yeah. How are you getting your reps to time block? Definitely. And so I, I can break this. Why don't I start with how I used to do it as an AE? Because I started at Carta as an AE, and that's where I really learned time blocking. And that'll probably a little, be a little bit more relevant to the audience, and then I can break that down for an SDR. Okay. And so a lot, a lot of people will say that they time block. I think everybody says like, oh, yeah, I time block. But until you actually look at somebody's calendar, very few people actually abide to it. Yeah. So the way that I define time blocking is you are doing one set of activities at any given point in time with zero distractions, barring some very large emergency, right? What many other people define as time blocking is I'm going to do one set of activities, but if a customer emails me or if Slack comes up or if I get a phone call or if a buddy comes by my desk, I'm going to stop and I'm going to forget. I'm going to lose momentum. And so that's the key point about time blocking is you focus and you drill down to one thing at a time. So when I was an AE, I would get in at 8 a.m., right? Not a ridiculously unreasonable time. And the first 30 minutes of the day, it would always be time blocked. And every time that was clearing out my inbox and making sure that I was responding to anything urgent all in mass as quickly as possible, right? Because those morning hours are golden to get in front of customers and to get on the phones. At 8.30, I'm going live. 90-minute dial block every single morning. And I'll talk about the end of the day. At the end of the day, I'm actually prepping for that dial block. So I'm ready to rock at 8.30 to 10, right? 40, 50, 60 dials in 90 minutes. Slack is closed. Email is closed. Everything is closed, right? And you're just going through the dials, right? And you're cranking them out. And I'll set one, two, three meetings in a dial blitz because I'm being good, I'm focused, and I'm tailoring in on one specific persona. So I'll call all my fintech people in one 90-minute dial blitz, right? Wow, that, that's really an important key thing that, well, okay, you're setting aside 90 minutes to dial, but you're setting 90 minutes to dial a particular persona because that way you don't have to do the mind shifting you don't have to you know think about who you're calling and what pitch you need to do you just go exactly and so every time it's like hey it's Armand at Carta we work with other folks in the fintech space like Robinhood have you heard our name tossed around boom i can practice that 6 7 8 20 40 60 times and get really good at that and the first couple are always going to be rocky but it blows my mind that people will do five dials and then stop and then 3 hours later they'll do another five dials right? That blows my mind because my first five dials are always my worst five dials. Yeah. And so you got to get <laughs> momentum through it. I love that point. And so let's say it's 1030, you take a little break, there's some lag time and let's call it 11, right? Everything from 11 to three as an account executive for me were my golden hours of being in front of customers or getting in front of customers, Right, And what I mean by that is if I have demos scheduled, I did my best to schedule them during those times of day, but inevitably sometimes it would come earlier in the morning and I would shift those dial blocks out. But if you're doing any admin work, if you're prospecting, if you're looking for contacts during those golden hours of 11 to 3, you're missing out on those golden times when you can be in front of customers. And so let's say it comes 3 p.m. and you still haven't done your dials. Well, guess what? If you're on the West Coast and it's 3 p.m., you can't do dials anymore. Because a yeah. lot of your clients are on the East Coast. And so 11 to 3, you're doing the golden customer-facing activities. If you don't have meetings, you're working to get meetings. You're doing more dials. You're sending more emails. Whatever that is, you're in front of customers. My, and then the last good. piece is from 3 to 4 p.m. Then I'm doing all of my case follow-up. And this is where I'll really be a stickler on those reps out there is you think that the customer that you had a demo with at 11 a.m. needs a follow-up email right there, right? You think about that, 
right? But you have to also realize that if you're selling to the CEO of a venture-backed company, they have a million and one other things on their plate. And they can wait till 3 p.m. to get your recap email. And so you're taking notes during the demo, you're writing your, your summary out at the end during the last five minutes of the demo, and then you wait. And then at 3 to 4 p.m., I have four, five, six demos stacked up. I'm writing every single follow-up back to back to back to back to back, and then I'm doing my case prep for the next day back to back to back to back to back. And then my last two hours of the day are prospecting hours. So 4 to 6 p.m., now I'm filling the funnel. I'm finding companies. I'm finding people. It's downtime. Nobody's awake. People are leaving the office, and this is my time to fill my funnel so that 9 a.m. tomorrow, I can be hitting the phones again. Wow, it's really good. It's really... And you do... How often are you actually like keeping that? I mean, when I was an AE, this was like a religion for me. Yeah. And again, when demos would come earlier, you move the blocks, right? So those calendar blocks, they stay on, right? Yeah. And you just move the blocks. Yeah, until there's no more place to move it, then you just have to push the prospect to another day. Exactly. And that's a very good problem to have, right? Yeah. But I love it when reps will tell me like, you know, I, I just have so many opportunities that I'm working that I don't have time to prospect. I was managing 75 opportunities at one point in time, 75. And I still had time to make 200 dials a week with a full-time closing schedule. Yeah, You can always make time. It's a choice. And if you're intentional about your time, if you're intentional about doing your opportunity reviews in bulk, twice a week, one hour at a time, and you're not just staring at your pipeline all day when stuff isn't moving anyway, you'll find that you have a much better abundance mentality than the folks who try to squeeze every dollar that they can and they're discounting and they're desperate to close every deal they have versus I'm the guy filling my funnel 10 times more over. Yeah. And then you're not desperate. You get a higher close rates. You get more money per close. It's good. Exactly. You let them close on, on their own time. You don't force the discount to pull them in this month when they didn't even ask for it. You let them close at a higher ACV in a reasonable time frame, and you don't pepper them to death. You fill your own funnel and you work on your time, not on theirs. Yeah. Wow. Terrific. Okay. So let's go back to your, your role as a manager of the SDR. What is the biggest failing point that you're seeing with new SDRs? There's two pieces. I talked about the activity already. And so you got to do the activity. That's easily the biggest point. And that's just the bottom line about the SDR function is it's a inputs in, outputs out, right? And so that's the first point that people fail, but I can give you something else too. The other way that oftentimes people fail is they, they seem to think that the learning stops once you've figured it out, right? And the best people always, 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 always systematically own their own development. And so every SDR goes through a curve where at the beginning, they're bad, right? And that's just because you're new in the job and you haven't really figured it out yet. And then everybody hits this point where they're, they're hitting quota, right? Typically, yeah. most SDRs will get there and they're hitting it, right? But then you have that last threshold. And the difference between good to great is, is just that much, right? It's, it's a very small amount, uh, but it's the people who are listening to the podcast like this one. They're listening to the sales podcast. They're listening to the industry podcast. They're doing the role plays. They're actually watching the demos for the meetings they set. So they're learning the language of VC. They're learning the language of a CFO. They're immersing themselves in the space so that for every 200 dials they make, instead of setting one and a half percent of their meetings, they're setting 2% of their meetings. And that incremental half percent is exponential. And that adds up and that builds your own SDR pipeline. And those are the people 
who are doing 150% of their number. It's that little last piece of being that much more effective and then multiplying it across the 200, 400, 500 touches that you're doing on prospects. All of the incremental improvements as an SDR have exponential results, but a lot of people will choose to stop at the 80% good when they could get it to 90 or 95% good. Absolutely. And it's so easy to do. You know, everybody says, well, I work full time and then I've got to get home and take care of this, take care of that. But what about the drive home or the commute home? You know, what about when you're going out and walking the dog? You know, it doesn't take much to put headphones in and listen to a podcast or listen to a call recording. Yeah. You've got to love what you do. And if you don't love what you do, if you don't love what you sell, if you don't actually care about it enough to immerse yourself in the space, I would honestly go suggest that you go and work towards something where you can find something that you actually want to sell. Absolutely. when I came to Carta, I knew I wanted to sell at the cross-section of startups and VC, and I get so juiced up on our space every day. And other people, like at Salesforce, they get juiced up on the vision that Salesforce is painting. But if you don't like what you're selling, you're cutting yourself short because you're watching the clock. Yeah. So find something that you actually care about so you can own your own development. Absolutely. I think that's one of the best pieces of advice is to do that. You know, like everybody says, if I think it was... Steve Jobs or something like that, that has that quote that is overused by everybody. But if you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. I think it was Steve Jobs, right? I forget it. I think it was him. Yeah. So anyways, it's true. You, If you put that extra effort in, like if you love your job enough to put that extra effort in, then your job actually becomes easier because then you're not fighting yourself and you're, you're actually better at it. So it becomes less effort once you actually put that initial time in. Yeah, I totally agree with you. 100% agree. And it was a big mindset shift for me because I wasn't always in sales and I wasn't always in a field that I loved. And when I took the jump into a commission-based role, I realized what it was like to be all in on what you were doing. So completely agree. Yeah. All right. This next question you've kind of already answered, but I want to ask it anyways, because maybe you've got a different angle. But what's something that you do differently or did differently when you were a, a rep? that allowed you to excel beyond everybody else? Again, it's the consistent activity. It's the time blocking. Those are two big ones. But Mm -hmm. if I give you another angle on this, there are a lot of reps who they think they've got it figured out, right? And one of the things that I, I always love to do is I would take the top 10 AEs and at least for 25% of my calls, I would force one of them to join my calls and grill me after it and tear me apart. And I would force my manager to do the same thing. I remember when I when I caught my stride, he would always be giving me this really good feedback. And I actually got mad at him at a certain point. I was like, dude, if you don't want me to get better, then keep coaching me like this because I love it. I love the praise. I, you're my biggest advocate. But man, you better give me some tough feedback. Otherwise, I'm screwed because I'd yeah. rather get caught by you than by a customer. And so take the, and don't just take the ones you like. Don't just take the ones who have a similar style. Go and seek out people with different styles from you and have them come on your demo and just have them be a fly on the wall, right? Say, hey, I want to drive with this, but if I look to you and if I call you in, right, you come and save me, right? And then you just let them observe and you let them tear apart and you proactively solicit that feedback. And there are so many things where I just gave the reins to another rep and uh, handling a certain type of objection. And I thought they were going to handle it one way. And they just completely shifted their approach. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to add that to my repertoire. And you don't learn that stuff if you're the only one doing the demos. 
So not only go and watch other reps do demos, but bring them into yours because you only know what you know. You don't know what you don't know. And that's what other reps are there to point out for you. Absolutely. Great. Do you have a favorite book that you suggest for sales and leadership? So this is, I've tried to listen to a lot of, or read a lot of sales books. And I, I honestly haven't found one that I'm crazy about. And the reason is a lot of them become outdated. A lot of it is, is around the digital age and, and that, that information is constantly, constantly cycling. But if you think to the books that help founders, right? I'm a huge advocate of the book Zero to One. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. So it's written by Peter Thiel, who has some very controversial opinions and, and he gets a lot of heat. But if you remove yourself from a lot of like the controversial political opinions or whatever it might be, the fundamental thesis of the book is that in order to build a business, in order to create a startup, you need to essentially capture a number of monopolies. And that's consistent with most big startups out there, like the Googles of the world or the Amazons of the world, where they started by capturing a very small monopoly and driving scale through that value proposition. And that you need to be able to think about that stuff when you're thinking about your own skill set as a salesperson is, how do I drive scale through my own unique secret sauce and get really, really, really good at one thing and then expand my skill set to the next thing? Maybe my secret sauce is cold calls, but my next secret sauce is going to be managing my pipe. And then my next secret sauce is going to be time blocking, right? You can apply those same principles to not only how to conquer the business world, but how to conquer the sales world and shift your mindset in terms of building many monopolies around your own skill sets yourself. So I'm a huge advocate of that book, a little bit less related to sales, but certainly related to the startup world. That's really good. Good suggestion. All right. What's one piece of advice that you would give to any new sales manager out there? I've seen this happen with a lot of sales managers where a lot of people say, hey, you don't need to get into the data. You don't need to get into the tactics of it all. And you might not need to get into the tactics of like, this is where I click here. This is where I, I click here and all of that stuff. But it's amazing that so many coaches sales managers, they want to be removed from the action. They just want to coach deals. That's all they want to do. They just want to coach deals. They want to say, I'll come into your demos and then I'll, I'll forecast with you and I'll say, do this with this opportunity. But very few people actually want to get into the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to prospect and break down someone's day. And that's the problem is a lot of people will say, go make more cold calls or go close at a higher ACV. But you, if you can't break down a rep's day, into how they're time blocking and where they're spending their time. And if they're being extremely inefficient in certain paths, right? You'll actually never know why they're not successful. And I guarantee most managers who have reps who are not succeeding, there are some that are still doing the activity, but aren't being successful and they have no idea why. And they think they know why, but they don't because they've not actually taken the time to get into the reps day and break down their core activities and see where they're having problems. And so I, I would challenge every manager to have working sessions with your team, to get into the data, coach on a data-driven basis. Don't just coach based off of closed one, but off of call to contact, contact to demo set, days to close, ACV, and be able to pick apart everybody's different metrics and then tailor the coaching to the individual as opposed to just saying, make more phone calls. Absolutely. Really, I think that's the very important. Personalize it. Make sure that you understand them, not just on the high level 
Oh yeah, make more phone calls because nothing that would piss off a a salesperson more is just. I don't want to hear. I need to make more phone calls. I'm making two hundred, three hundred phone calls. Yeah. What do, what am I doing wrong? I'm making those phone calls. So, yeah, there are folks who do fifty and they get four x the results. Yeah. And so, why is that? Do you need to tell that person to make a hundred more cold calls? I mean, maybe, but probably not if they're having those types of results. You should probably take what they're doing well and start to translate it to some of the other reps. Absolutely. Great. Armon, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time. How could people reach out to you? Yeah. So my email is, I have a slightly weird name. It's Armand, A-R-M-A-N-D dot Farouk, F-A-R-R-O-K-H at Carta, C-A-R-T-A dot com. I run the SDR team in both offices. You can send me a cold email, do some good outreach to me, hit me with a LinkedIn touch, hit me on the phone, whatever you got to do to get in touch with me. I'm always an open door when people do cold outreach. We are hiring. So if you're an aspiring SDR out there, an aspiring college grad, please reach out to me. I love it when people do cold outreach. Yeah. And I don't think you get a... I mean, there's, there's lots of good managers out here, but here's a good example of, of somebody that cares and will train you well, I think. Awesome. Adam, you're the man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.